You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 3rd of November 2019 on Monocle 24. It's Sunday the 3rd of November. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, why France's Emmanuel Macron is running out of patience with the UK. We'll examine the role of the EU's bad cop in the Brexit battle. My guest, the journalist Marie Billon, will join me in the studio to discuss that and go through the Sunday papers. Plus... Now when he was a young man, he never thought he'd see people stand in line Taking King Tutankhamun's treasures on tour, the dazzling blockbuster exhibition arrives in London, and we've had a look. All that to come in the next half hour, so stay with us. This is Monocle's House View. Starts now. And a very warm welcome to Studio One, holding our hands for the next half hour through news, reviews and general just gossip. Marie Bion, a journalist for the French media. Welcome to the studio, Marie. Good Hello. to see you. Uh, let us begin with a Franco-Anglo tussle. Pour encourager les autres is a term used to explain a gesture of violent punishment to act as a deterrent to others. Well, some might say that this is an approach taken by France and its president, Emmanuel Macron, in the lengthy toing and froing of the Brexit saga. It was he, if you remember, who tried to have the last Brexit extension shortened, and the same has just happened again with a second deadline of pushing it back from the 31st of October to the 31st of January. Now, Marie, explain to us what is going on, what role has Macron been playing in the negotiations here? Well, he wanted to be at the centre of the negotiations. Uh, he wants to be, you know, seen as the, the leader of Europe, so he doesn't mind basically going against uh, every, everyone else. But basically his thinking was that uh, the British has been, you know, dragging their feet to do Brexit in a way, and even now having it do, does trust Boris Johnson to want to do Brexit. So he identified, I think, uh, Parliament as being the you know the thing that makes not Brexit happen. So he thought that perhaps having seen that some MPs were now willing to uh, consider a deal, something they would not have been willing to do a few months ago, just a few months ago, he thought that perhaps it would help Boris Johnson to have a short extension to do what exactly the Prime Minister, British Prime Minister, wanted to do, which is basically uh, force the uh, MPs to think that uh, there's no other alternative and that they have to basically act now and. And uh, you know, study the study the deal and and vote on it. And he thought that it would be you know the time constraint would be useful in terms of uh, solving uh, Brexit. So in a way, he was you know helping Boris Johnson, working alongside Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson must have been very happy about 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 about, about this at some point. Uh, and there, there are three words that have come up uh, in <coughs> excuse me in what you've just said in the last few few seconds uh, that have been entirely absent from any of the British press. Uh, trust of Boris Johnson. I mean, that's that's a that's a whole other subject for another day. Helpful, useful. I mean, some other people are suggesting that Macron actually is deliberately being the bad cop here. 
Well, there's there's an element there's an element of that, of course, and you need to have a good cop, bad cop. But I mean, normally it's Merkel being the good cop and Macron being the bad cop. The good cop was a bit absent. You haven't heard really about Merkel's position. You heard about the other Europeans and Macron. So it, it, the, 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 the dynamic is very different from even the last extension because Mark Merkel is very you know weakened um, compared to last time. So it, it can't exactly work like that and. So when I say trust, only in the fact that he wants to do Brexit for all the rest and all the methods and all that, I'm not sure it's going to be, it's the bromance that sometimes the um, the uh, papers talk about. But it's true that in a way for, I mean, he, I guess he, he worked alongside Theresa May as well. Uh, and he might have preferred her method that were more perhaps, um, you know, um, respectful of, of Parliament than Boris Johnson. But at some point, um, even Macron sometimes is accused of, uh, you know, thinking in a way, accused in the media, that thinking in a way sometimes democracy is a bit of a hinder to do things. So uh, this this wasn't uh, this wasn't anti-democratic, basically, uh, not at all, just saying to Parliament you have a limit, limited amount of time to do something. But uh, he does think that sometimes you have to push people against the wall so they act and do something. And uh, that's exactly the thinking of Boris Johnson as well. The difficulty that you might find is if Macron and Boris Johnson are in agreement is there any chance that Emmanuel Macron and his determination um, or his his, vo- his vocal expression <laughs> might ac- might lead to an accidental no-deal Brexit? I think the French government is reconciled with the FD, the idea of a no-deal Brexit. That's something that's very important to understand. Uh, they're really not comfortable with the idea, but reconciled to the idea that uh, it might just happen. They're very well prepared, very well prepared. And although they know there will be uh, shocks and all that, uh, they think that at some point, because there's a you know a, a long-term goal they want to achieve, they don't want to have Boris Johnson and, and, and the, the, the Brits basically hindering the European project. I mean, the European project is very, very important for Emmanuel Macron and he's a politician. He's going to seek re-election in a few years' time. Uh, so he wants to be seen as a, some, as a president who did something about Europe. That's, that was basically his, you know, his mojo when he was elected to be the European president compared to uh, Marine Le Pen and all that. Think about what it would look like if in a few years' time, when he seeks re-election, the, European, the pro-European president arrives with basically saying, oh, we haven't had the time to do anything thing about Europe because of the Brits, but do re-elect me because I do want to do something about it as, as, as soon as we get rid of the Brits. That's not going to work. That's not going to fly. And he is not that popular. So he really needs to move on with his European agenda. And and the Brits are just taking a lot of the time of the of the EU at the moment. Well, how much actually will a very pro-EU agenda and a determination to fix things endear him to the French electorate? Because France, like every other country, does still have its existential struggles with Europe. It perhaps doesn't need Europe as much as many other countries inside the bloc might do. If you have a very pro-EU president, you could end up in the same mess that we have here in the UK. True, but I mean, the way he's pro-EU is with an agenda in a way. So he's very, uh, he, he, for example, he also blocks the talks to, uh, you know, uh, admitting new countries, Balkan countries, to the to the EU. And uh, enlarging Europe is not something that is popular in France. So he stood against that. So that's a good point for him in terms of the opinion, even the Eurosceptic opinion. And uh, the, the, the idea is that it's not just pro-European, like I like Europe and everything they do is good. They want He wants to reform it in the core. He wants to have a different Europe and to be able to sell it to the French people. In a way, it's a bit like 
like what David Cameron uh, tried tried to do uh, very differently, of course. But he said, um, Europe is a good thing. It's not working properly at the moment, so we need to change it a bit so people will understand a bit better what Europe is about. And that's exactly what he wants to do. But he just cannot do that because of all the time consuming, the time consumed on 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 Brexit. So yes, there's a lot of Euroscepticism in, in France at the moment. And if he was just selling Europe as it is, it won't work. That's exactly why he doesn't want to sell Europe as it is. He wants to change it and sell it to the French people after that. It's an interesting thing you mentioned the idea of him, the France being the only country that blocked the um, accession bid by North Macedonia and Albania to the EU. There's been some talk um, about the fact that if you block new countries who are clearly trying very, very hard to get into the European Union, push them away and they will ideologically push themselves away from the European Union. Mm. And so this idea of ever closer union and bringing different kinds of countries together, you're actually you're being counterproductive here. And um, the, 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 the accusation is, is that Macron wants a certain kind of Europe to exist. Yes, and you're quite right. Even I mean, North Macedonia changed its name to be able to get into the EU. I mean, you can't do more, you know, commitment than that. So yeah, I'm sure there are lots of people in North Macedonia who are not happy about this uh, this decision. And it's true that you risk basically to push them into another circle, perhaps closer to uh, Russia or something, something like that. That's that's something that's being taken into into account. But the in a way, the, the vision of Emmanuel Macron, so I'm not you know, defending his vision, but the way he sees things is that Europe is not working as a, as a monolithic block. You need to have uh, a few circles, basically, of integration in Europe. And he wants to put these circles in place before you know, make and make enter new uh, new members because then when they enter and the circles are in place, they will know you know from the from the go which circle they they belong to. And this idea of circle is having you know all the formative European um, countries like France and Germany, Italy, and that at the center, the more most integrated, and of course the eurozone uh, most integrated part in the center. And then on the periphery, the first periphery, those who might may have occasion to get into the eurozone, the the, the you know the the older adherents, and then at the uh, up, upper circle, basically the further away from the center, those who basically want to be in Europe but want to have some freedom or the new you know, newcomers and this kind of thing so his organization um, basically as as long as I mean, there's already 27 countries he has to deal with if there's one two more that's 28 29 country and of course many decision has to be taken with unanimity or at least with a, with a, with a majority sometimes more than just a majority and having less countries in it makes that perhaps there's less hinders on his on his way as well and finally the more spiteful members of the british media might suggest that actually to get rid of the british in all this might just make emmanuel macron's day well not exactly his day but it's true that they've been they've they've, they've, they've been a bit of a drag uh, so it would certainly it was certainly in terms of his european project not having the uk in a sidelined uh 
taking all the time with Brexit or even just before Brexit, just, you know, being a nuisance uh, in the EU project, which is what they was and were proud to be, is something that, yeah, you could you could argue that it would basically make things way simpler simpler for, for, for the EU not to have the, the Brits in it. But at the same time, at the moment, the EU is a bit, it's changing. Normally it was the Franco-German couple. It doesn't exist anymore. And even with that, the Brits were kind of the counterweight, those who were a bit more skeptical about everything that you had to take into account, the you know the 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 sane uh, way of thinking differently, and there's no one to take the place. At some point, we thought that Italy perhaps could play this role, but Italy, with the political mess they're in, it they can't really play this role. So, uh, I mean, it's it's it would be a hinder that would be basically taken off. But at the same time, you need to have counterweights in a big organization like that, and if you lose the Brits, you 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 lose that. So and. Uh, Although France is prepared to, a no deal is prepared to, you know, have the UK out of the EU for for, for many things, uh, I do think that in the end uh, they do. They, they, are, they agree with Tusk when he says you can come back and you can stay in. That's not a problem at all. We'll find a, we'll find a way. Because even for security co- cooperation, for migrants, for many, many things, and of course trade, um, the, uh, the France and the UK have a very special relationship more than any other two countries in, in, in the EU. Uh, but it's true that also, you know, Emmanuel Macron is a young president. He wants to be positive. And if he dwells on the fact that it's going to be more difficult if the UK leaves, I mean, that's not, it's not going to be popular. He wants to be seen as, you know, the force the force that, that goes ahead. That's part of his rant. Mary Beyond, thank you very much indeed. Mary will be with us in a little while again to go through the newspapers. I think we're going to be talking about pancakes. Uh, you're listening to Monocle's House View. Welcome back to Monocle's House View with me, Emma Nelson, joined in the studio by Marie Billon. It's almost a century since the archaeologist Howard Carter and his team broke through a walled-off set of steps and opened up what some say was the world's greatest archaeological discovery. Now, after millions have seen it in LA and Paris, the largest collection of the Boy King's artefacts to travel outside Egypt arrives in London. The Tutankhamun Treasures is a spectacular show, mixing history with Hollywood. Well, I went down to the exhibition at the Saatchi Gallery a couple of days ago to meet the man taking Tutankhamun's treasures on tour, the curator Tarek El Awadi. But first, let's hear the voice of the man who opened the tomb, Howard Carter. 3,000 years ago, in history we know, Tutankhamun ruled a mighty land. Thirty-three centuries had passed since human beings last trod the floor on which we stood. We had penetrated two chambers. We are surrounded by wonderful things. That's how Howard Carter, the one who found the tomb of Tutankhamun, described the treasures for the first time when he looked at it. We are bringing 150 artifacts, and this is for the first time because Egypt never allowed this number of artifacts from the tomb of Tutankhamun to travel outside the tomb. But because we are celebrating 100 years since the time of the discovery of the tomb, we are bringing 150 artifacts, and this is the last royal 
tour of Tutankhamun. We are alive, we were in the presence of the dead king. There is a journey from the earthly life to the afterlife. And during the journey, the king, like any traveler, he will need to be well equipped for the journey. So the ancient Egyptian buried every item they thought that it will help the king during his journey to the afterlife. The Tutankhamun World Tour of the 1960s introduced the world to the blockbuster exhibition, and this is no different. It's got just enough pop archaeology to remind us just how much the Boy King is part of modern mainstream culture. But the lifelike statues of him hunting or riding on a panther show us a slight, gentle teen who walked with a stick and played with boomerangs. This is an exhibition full of royalty and riches, but it's also drenched in tenderness. We made sure that uh, the objects will be from every place from the tomb of Tutankhamun. So we do have objects from the antechamber, the annex, the burial chamber, and also the treasury room. So since the time of the discovery of the treasure, only one third or maybe a little bit more than one third of the treasure was on display in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo due to the uh, available space there in the museum. That's why Egypt needed the Grand Egyptian Museum to put together the whole treasure for the first time, you know, on display. And we will not, after our tour, the artifacts will join the rest of the treasure and be there on display for the visitors. And Egypt is not gonna take part of the treasure from uh, the Grand Egyptian Museum and send it uh, outside the country at least for the next 100 years to come. So surrounded by all these breathtaking items every single day, what does the curator still feel when he's up close? Never get used, you know, every day, every single... It doesn't matter how many times I tour the galleries and I look at the object. There is always something new, the tiny details, you know. First, what fascinates me about the objects is the story behind each object. And second, the magic and the beauty, you know, made by the ancient Egyptian in the object itself. So this is something beyond description. I can understand why Howard Carter, when he was asked so many times about his feeling, he couldn't, you know, give us one answer to tell us what he felt, how he felt when he found the tomb. It's because of the magic, you know, of the objects and not just the shiny gold of Tutankhamun.
Steve Martin there, finishing off a Hollywood treatment of King Tutankhamun and uh, the treasures of Tutankhamun. The biggest tour of his uh, artefacts is on tour. I think uh, London is the third in uh, a 10 city tour before it all goes back to a new museum in Cairo, never to be taken out of Egypt again. You're listening to Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. We go through the papers in a moment, so stay tuned. Monocle's designed Focus November issue hits newsstands on October the 17th and there's plenty to discover from all around the world. First we venture into the Syrian capital of Damascus where the military battle is over but a different war continues and meet those trying to find their way back to normality. Second, learn how bookseller James Daunt has successfully turned the UK chain Waterstones around and is now tasked with changing the fortunes of Barnes & Noble, the last remaining chain bookshop of scale in the US. Third, we take a first look at Kumanuma, a former factory turned culture centre in the suburbs of Paris, where gallerists are creating a new artistic community away from the crowds. Renovated by French architecture firm The Freaks, this space will host private galleries, an artist's residency and exhibitions. Fourth, our design-heavy issue not only features our top 20 furniture picks, we also sit down with some of the world's most talented architects, including John Paulson and Bjarke Ingels, to talk extraterrestrial infrastructure and minimalism. Monocle's November issue is available to order at monocle.com or do the wise thing and subscribe now. Welcome back to Monocle 24. This is The House View with Emma Nelson. If you've just joined us, Good morning. Uh, joining me in the studio is Mary Bion, journalist for French Media. And uh, we're going to go through some of the day's uh, newspapers. Shall we, shall we? Where do you want to begin, Mary? Well, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's a few stories about, you know, the elections, the NHS and all that. But I thought we would perhaps forget about uh, everything that's done with the election because it's just a start. And we're going to talk about that for, you know, many, many months to come. I'm exhausted already. and We've only been going about three days. Yes. So thank you for that for that little break. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about something that's not very more you know relieving. But uh, there's uh, uh, the new French newspaper are talking about uh, an attack that happened yesterday. Uh, there was a soldier, 24 year old soldier, who died in Sahel in Mali, uh, part of the operation, the um, the French uh, operation in the region to tackle and, uh, if possible, get rid of Daesh over there. And uh, this soldier died yesterday after he. His um, convoy was attacked by a makeshift bomb, and um, he's already three other, uh, two other soldiers died during the summer. French uh, soldier died during the summer there, and a few days ago there were 49 uh, Malian soldier that was killed in an attack, also um, unrelated attack. But I mean, there's it's there's a lot of things happening in Mali. Something we don't really hear about um, a lot, even in the in the UK or Anglo-Saxon country. But in France, we talk a lot about it because we have a lot of of you know soldiers over there and France is very important in terms of very much engaged in the in the fight against against giants there, but one of the paper, one of the the story of Le Monde is about Burkina Faso. is one of the country that's close to to Mali and that's seen as basically kind of a, a roadblock uh, for um, that that Daesh wants to you know 
pass so it can spread in other countries in the region. And the issue is that um, France has been trying to, uh, you know, move into this country. It's been called sometimes by the country to try and help secure some places. But there's this historic, historic, um, you know, defiance of France because of all the colonial past and all that. That's being resurgent uh, even this last few years. And many, many in government in Burkina Faso are very wary about asking French to uh, try and help to get rid of the uh, extremists in the region, which is an issue because uh, the paper says that the local forces haven't shown their efficiency. So uh, they should be, you know, the the, the paper said they should be basically uh, make the best of what's what's there in terms of the international forces, but they don't don't want to because of this this defiance. So uh, the, the story uh, ends with you know Emmanuel Macron uh, trying to try and and think if there's another alliance local alliance that can be uh, you know stricken uh, within the within countries in the region with only a minimal and uh, remote help from France anyway trying to find a solution for countries to for countries over there to be able to uh, to help them to fight this very very important um, you know threat that's Daesh for the region but also for the further field but at the moment, uh, there's there's kind of a you know kind of a, a, a blockage in there. Okay, let's move on to the New York Times. Uh, in Trump's Twitter feed, conspiracy mongers, racist, and spies. There's a surprise. Uh, what, <laughs> Trump and Twitter are two things that unfortunately go hand in hand. What does the New York Times uh, ban from? the White House, I think. Now, um, what do they say? Well, I mean, it's very, very interesting. It's not just saying, oh, Trump tweets all the time and all that. It's it's a very in-depth story about uh, how Trump uses its Twitter feed. So, for example, it just uh, when the survey was, was published, um, 1,100 tweets have been sent by Donald Trump since he arrived uh, three years ago in the in the White House. So that's, that's that, I think that's a nice number. What I didn't know is that until, um, that at the start of his presidency, his aides asked Twitter to impose a 15 minutes delay between the time he types his tweet and the time it goes on, you know, on live feed because they wanted to be able to check what he uh, what he posted. Of course, that didn't happen, and, uh, <laughs> and we all know it didn't happen. And the um, the the idea is that the, the the story is very much about how Twitter made the president and how he's using it for his purpose. Of course, you know he he, he rose into fame on Twitter with the birth certificate hashtag. Again. Obama, but then it helped him to be elected um, and uh, reaching to people who were not interested by politics through this medium, and then now it's completely woven into the fabric of his administration. He used it for political an- announcement, like for example moving the Israeli embassy uh, to, to from Tel Aviv basically to, to Jerusalem. That's, you know, if it's not a huge announcement to make, and he decided to do it on Twitter. So that's why basically t- the New York Times says that it's not just a gimmick and something we should basically put our hand in a, between our hands about. It's something that's much more important because what's also what he reveals as well is that what you can see all the people he follows are you know not most of them are not legitimate um, people or even if they don't follow it those who the, the people he follows follows you know dark webs and conspiracy theorists and he retweets them making them you know more popular. Finally. The bit that I'm super interested in, pancakes. Yeah, there's pan- a wonderful article in Le Monde talking about the cultural significance. This is so French. The cultural significance and goodness knows what importance of the creperie, the the restaurant that you go to when you're four, but then you go to when you're drunk, when you're twenty, and then you go to 
from every other time but in secret because it's not cool to go to a creperie. But they're basically saying that the eggs, the flour and the milk are the, kind of like the sticking blocks of French society. Well, you know, I mean, creperie is not something when you're 18 or university, you wouldn't go to a creperie unless unless you don't have a lot of money but you go out with your friends because it's quite cheap. Uh, so, uh, and, and you don't want to be drinking too much because you can only drink cider and there's only so much cider that you can drink. So, uh, in a way, that's basically oh, I kind don't of... Know. <laughs> Well, you, 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 it's hard to get drunk on, on cider. But, you know, it's it's very interesting. Crepe is one of the big debate of France. Do you want... <laughs> no, I'm serious. Don't laugh. It's just, if ever. you want to have a salty crepe, do you have to have... With eggs or bacon or anything. Do you have the base with salt as well? Or can you have it with sugar? Oh, both. Well, you can have either. Well, you, you can't have a... You know, a, it, you have to choose. For the crepe in itself, you have to have it or with sugar or salt. You can't have both. And so someone likes to have their sugary crepe with salty things on it. Something it's absolutely, you know, it's it's against, it's like stamping on the, on the flag, something like that. It's, <laughs> they feel very strongly about it. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a debate that perhaps that's why you don't go with your friends, because it's like Brexit. You could, you could end friendship on that, I guess, something like that. Goodness me. You never knew that going to the creperie was, was fraught with such social pain. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was eggs, flour, milk and a little bit of fun. Sorry, Beyond. Thank you very much indeed. Go and have a look at that article if you can in Le Monde. It's great. Good picture. That's all we have time for today. Our supervising producer was Rhys James. Our researcher was Will Hickingbotham. And our studio manager was Nora Hole. To all my guests, thank you very much indeed for joining us in the studio. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. Bye.